The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are um, looking at a few psalms, and I'm going to explain why we're looking at these psalms here in a minute. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 139 tonight. So if you have your Bible, you can open up and join, join me in Psalm 139. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. Uh, the verses will also be on the screen as well as we look at Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You, my frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed presence, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. My eyes, my enemies take your, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray and ask for God's help. O Father, now we look to you. We look to your word, and we know that you are a God of knowledge, and that you weigh the heart of every person here, and that you know us more deeply than we could understand, and by your word, you invite us to surrender our hearts and our lives to you. So God, with understanding beyond measure, we lift up our hearts and ask that you would instruct us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't know if the Psalms confuse you, but this Psalm is in some ways very clear, and in some ways gets a little confusing at the end of it, doesn't it? But here's why we're looking at these Psalms. I want to talk about 
why we're looking at this psalm. Because last week, David Pickney uh, graciously preached from us, for us from Psalm 23, the Father's shepherding care for us. And this week, we're looking at Psalm 139, and we're looking at the joyful, joyfully surrendering to an all-knowing God. And then next week, or in a couple weeks, we're going to look at uh, Psalm 147 and the infinite gratitude that we have in the hands of our gracious God. And all of this is trying to build around this theme. Now, I don't know if I'm doing this all so well, but I'm trying to build around this theme of joy together. What does it mean to have joy in God, joy together in God, joy that sustains with each other in God? And so last week we looked at a God who shepherds us together. This week we look at a God that we can surrender to together. And then we'll be looking at a God that we can be thankful to together in Psalm 147. I don't know if that's a great plan, but that's the plan. (laughs) And so tonight, excuse me, I'm also overcoming a cold. So you'll excuse me as I medicate slightly. Um, Tonight, we are looking at Psalm 139. And I don't know about you, but Psalm 139 is built around this whole idea of God knowing us, knowing us intimately. And I personally find it slightly um, disconcerting um, when somebody is trying to know me and when I, it's inconvenient for me, right? Um, I don't know if you do this, but uh, when Michelle, I'll be in the kitchen on my computer doing something and Michelle will just kind of like stand right next to me, not even looking at my computer. And I'm like, what do you want? You know, like she's trying to, like, she's just doing her thing. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, this is like my personal space, my private time. Like, why are you looking over my shoulder? We get a little bit kind of like freaked out when people like try to get to know us a little bit inconveniently. And that is a kind of um, what we're looking at here where David is meditating on this inconvenient God who happens to know us most intimately without our permission. Um, but he knows us deeply and he is meditating on this reality of being known and watched by God. It's a bit, this psalm is a bit like, um, you ever have those moments where you uh, get caught in an uncomfortable stare? You know, somebody starts staring at you a little too long. Um, like I'm doing with Matt right now. <laughs> somebody stares at you a little too long. You, this is David staring a little bit intensely at God's uncomfortable stare of knowing him. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight because David, as he begins to meditate on what is it to be in the presence of a God that knows everything, that has a complete knowledge of him, he begins to wrestle with maybe some of the questions that you would wrestle when I say something like, God knows everything, God has planned everything. When I say that, potentially that elicits for you, does God know about my struggle? Does God know about the chronic pain? Does God know about the difficulties and the divorce and the struggle and the suffering? And does God know? Does God plan my birthday out? Did God plan the struggles that I experience? These are all questions. I think it is, I'm just glad that the Bible addresses them and addresses them uh, in a way that's honest. And so David is wrestling with these. And I think what we're going to be seeing here as we look at this is that Even though all these things are a part of the equation of what David's looking at in Psalm 139, we can joyfully trust God, and that true joy comes from surrendering to an all-knowing God. This God that is 
all-knowing, we can surrender to him in his knowledge of us, and it's in that surrendering to him that true joy is birthed and found. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Does that sound okay, guys? Is that okay? And what happens in Psalm 139, um, I know poetry gets a little bit goofy. Like we're not always kind of biblical poetry is not always queer to us. Um, There's actually a bit of a story here, a bit of a story that progresses six verses at a time. And so in my um, preacherly wisdom, I decided we're going to go six verses at a time. (laughs) and follow the progression of the story. And we're going to just be looking at discovering, running, and embracing and living. And I'll repeat those as we're going along. But we're going to pick up in verse 1, discovering God's complete knowledge, where we find the Sherlock of the psalm, God in verses 1 through 4, searching, knowing, discerning, searching us out. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This is a picture of God who is progressively getting into our personal space. He is searching him out. You see verse 2, when I sit down and when I rise up. So he's thinking, okay, God, what are all the things you can know about me? Well, when I sit down and when I rise up. I mean, I don't know what your work schedule is like, but however often you sit down at work, however often you stand up at work um, to do whatever, go get something, go to the bathroom, go talk to your coworker, um, you know, get up to go home, and you sit down in your car, sit down in your car and drive home and then you get up out of your car. So God is familiar with all those things before they happen and while they happen. He knows them from afar, so he's invisible. It can't be seen, but yet he knows all those things, what's going on, all the like half steps to get up as well. He knows those. He counts those as a half. And then God is not only discerning those things from afar, but he's uh, observing the outside, the inside. Verse 2, discern, you discern my thoughts from afar you search my path, am I lying down? So here he goes, not only sitting up and walking around and standing up, but everything that happens from you know, laying down when you go to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning after watching the World Series, or when you wake up the next morning a bit uh, drugged out from staying up till 2 o'clock in the morning watching the World Series. God knows when you stand up and walk around. He knows everything about you that could be possibly known from the outside, and he is acquainted not only with the, the outside things, but then he's acquainted with the inside, right? He knows the inside. But then there in verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So everything that I'm saying right now, God knows the formulation of them behind what I, before I say them. It's the same thing for you. God knows everything is happening before you, before you say the words, he knows them before you say them, uh, which I find helpful because uh, I often say things that I don't intend the meaning to be, but then I say them and then somebody takes them the wrong way. You know, like this last week I was talking about some way of serving and I said, oh, well, serving that way is low bar serving. And what I meant by that was um, it's easy to go serve, I was talking about Roca. It's easy to go serve at Roca. You don't really, you just have to show up, be a warm body, and love people. I mean, that's really all you do. And um, they interpreted that as being like, oh, it's for stupid people like me. <laughs> I was like, 
and they were joking me, but God knew those words that I said, and he knew my intention with them before I said them, and then he could also kind of point at the words I actually said and say, you know, there's a bit of a discrepancy here, (laughs) you know? So God knows the words that you are going to say before you say them. He knows the intentions of the heart. And then in verse 2, there's something we passed over I want us to look at. Verse 2 in the second half, he says, You discern my thoughts from afar. And we could see that and think like, oh, well, of course, God can't be seen. God's not like, I can't visibly see God right here. What that means is that God sees my thoughts from heaven and knows everything about me. But I think what David has in mind here is not in terms of like space, distance. I think he's thinking in terms of time. Before anything happened, before anything began to transpire, God knew exactly what was going to happen. God knew exactly when you were going to stand up. God knew exactly when you were going to say those mean words. God knew all of those things and the motivations of your heart in what we call eternity past, so before anything was created. God from afar, before they even began to transpire, God from afar knew they were going to happen. In fact, I would say that God actually planned, he ordained, it means so God's decree that everything's going to happen the way God wants it to happen for God's purposes. God planned it before anything was created. Um, and he not only planned it, but there in verse 4, uh, you know it all together. Verse, effectively meaning, like an old habit, God, you know all these things. So like God's so familiar with everything that transpires in your life and my life and creation and the world around us. He's so familiar with them. It is as similar to like the same old habit that you do every day. When you walk in and you put your keys on the hook or you put your keys in the little dish or you always brush your teeth a certain way or you always wash your hands a certain way or you always do what you know, your, your habits in your life. That's how, that's, that's how God knows everything in the world that's ever happened, that is happening, that will happen. God knows them all like he could do it and wash his hands without even thinking about it. Like that's, that's, what, that's a picture that David is wrestling with. He knows everything about you like an old habit. He knows everything to the deepest parts. And there's a bit, I, I feel at times, like this is a bit like God is the great Sherlock. I think about, he, he sees everything that's going on. If you ever watched an episode of Sherlock, I love the BBC series, Sherlock. Um... The new, the American one, elementary, you know, I like the first season, not so much in the second or third season, but Sherlock, the whole premise of Sherlock Holmes is that he uh, walks into a room and he like calculates everything and he sees things that we don't see, right? And then at the end, it's a big reveal, oh, because you cut the turkey that way and I saw the bandage on your left pinky, you know, like all this stuff, he puts it all together and you're the murderer, you know, it's something like that. So Sherlock walks in and knows what's going on. Um, God sees Everything he sees more deeply what's going on in your life. He sees, he sees more deeply the motivations and the reasons and the cause and effect than we could ever possibly see. And I personally feel like this gets me into a place where I uh, I get a little uncomfortable because that means that if God sees everything about my life beyond what I know, um, I begin to feel a little like I was using that illustration before an uninvited guest knowing my life. I'm just trying to do my thing. 
but here God is. He knows everything. I begin to feel a little exposed and a little uncomfortable, which is why I think in verse 5 and verse 6, David says, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Now we can read that, and I think there's a way of reading that in things like, um, oh God, you know me and you take care of me. Um, But I think David in this verse feels trapped. You, You hem me in and you put your hand upon me. Kind of like a bug. You know when you ever catch a bug? The image is that God's got you. You can't do anything about it. Um, and he feels a bit trapped. And you can imagine, have you ever, caught, have you ever thought about like when you go and catch like, um, fireflies at night or whatever? Uh, have you ever thought about it from the fireflies' perspective? Like here I am just doing my thing, buzzing around. And then I'm caught. Like what is going on? For that bug, such knowledge is too high for him. <laughs> and for us, in the hand of God's infinite knowledge about us, such knowledge that, that he knows when I would begin to go bald before I even was acknowledged it, or when my depression would begin and where it would end, or where the financial struggles would come from and where they'd end, or when my family members would come to Christ or when they'd walk away, or whatever... All of these infinite number of things, the possibilities that happen in our lives, God knows them all together. And here David is discovering God's complete knowledge. And it makes him a bit skittish. Do you ever feel like this with God? Do you ever feel like God is a bit invasive in your life? He knows a little too much that he, um, that you wish that he would not know so much about you. Um, and then maybe, uh, do you ever get a little uncomfortable when people start to ask the questions that touch on things to expose who you are? Hey, uh, so tell me about what happened there. And you get a little uncomfortable and you kind of find a way out of the conversation. Um, Do you you know what I'm talking about? That feeling, I think, stems from feeling a little nervous in God's complete knowledge of us, which is why the story continues. If you pick up with me in verse 7, running from God's complete knowledge. So here we have... David, who has now begun to feel a little nervous in God's presence and nervous in God's complete knowledge of him. And so he begins to use all these illustrations of, I am done with this. I'm running away. Verse 7, where should I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? So I'm just pulling straight from the text, running. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the most part of sea, you are there. The image there that he is using is like at the crack of dawn when the sun, when the sunlight shoots across the sky, if he had the speed of that light going across to shine on the backside of the mountain, what, if he had that speed to get away from God's presence, he still could not leave God's presence. I mean, the, the image in my mind, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I love the Grand Canyon. I recommend you go to the Grand Canyon. Uh, we're, we're getting kickbacks from the Arizona tourist industry because I'm recommending it. I recommend you go. But as you sit there, Michelle and I went one time, and 
You can go and sit on the side of the Grand Canyon as the sun cracks over the sky. And it just fills this image with, with vividness that the sun just shoots across the sky. And if you had that type of speed, you could still not get away from God's presence. I mean, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how far you try to get away from God, you still cannot get away from God's presence. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, so if he were to you know, be like a miner and go way down in the earth, God's still there. He is completely surrounded by God at every point in creation. He cannot get away from God. And this is, uh, this is very similar to us as well. Right, so David here is talking about all these vivid images of running from God, but we we often talk about oh, so and so is running from God, right? Or maybe you've run from God. I don't know what your story is, where you where you're at and meeting God, but um, and knowing God, but we all, in one way or another, desire to run to what's comfortable and convenient rather than going to God. And here David is, he is running, he is trying to get away from God's presence, going to what is comfortable. Or what's convenient to get away from God's presence because he begins to feel a little exposed. He's running from God's presence. We, f- we often feel this is uncomfortable to be so known, to be under the eye of God. I would rather stuff my face with the chocolate. I would rather go back to the place that is most convenient for my desires. I would rather click on that image that I, don't, I know that God would not want me to see. I would rather talk about other people's drama rather than address the drama of my own life. We often flee from God, we run from God by going to what's convenient and comfortable rather than dwelling in the presence of God. And yet David does this really interesting maneuver here because he's, he's running from God's complete knowledge. And yet here in verse 10, we hit a transition. So I don't know if you see this or if you feel it, but he's running and fleeing God's presence. And then in verse 10, so he's running from God's presence to the other most parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, he's been running from God's presence. And then here in verse 10, the transition is surrendering to God's presence. Because here is God who is upholding him, who is leading him. And I, I just like, what? What happened? <laughs> like how, in the verses, with the, with the content that we're given here in these verses, how is it that David comes to the point of thinking, oh, I'm going to surrender to God. And I think, I think that the reason, I think the reason why David has this transition in verse 10 is he realizes that if God is everywhere and intentionally upholding him, even in the darkest of places, this is a God who can be trusted. If God is with him, no matter where he goes, if God's upholding his life, even his rebellion against God, if God is being merciful to him, even amidst all the ways in which he's trying to run away from God, if God's even there and hasn't struck him down, he can trust this God. This God is pursuing him not to, to crush him, but to, to draw him back. You see the language... You know, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall uphold me, leaning on God's presence now. So where he was running before, he's now leaning on God, which is to say that in verse 11 and 12, where he's talking about surely darkness shall cover me, the night 
is as bright as day with you, that is, even in the darkest moments of his life, where he could get the furthest away from God's presence, God is there. God is with him. God is upholding him. And even the oppressive darkness that upfolds over him, God is with him and is keeping him safe. Which I think should give us comfort that even if you are tonight running from God, or you know people that are running from God in your life, so Christians or non-Christians alike, God is with them. God is with you. Even in the darkness of where you feel like you are, even in the addictions that you feel like you might be drawn to, even in the most disquieting and darkest places, God is there. God is upholding. God is guiding you. And he can lead you out of the darkness. He can lead you out of the addiction. God is near even in the darkest moments, which is to say, it's okay if you're struggling with depression. There's Psalm, Psalm 88, darkness is my only friend. You can experience depression and be a Christian. <laughs> but God is still in that with you. He is leading you and guiding you and will uphold you as, this, as David promises here. Even your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even wherever you go, God knows it. God knows, God knows all the details and all the relational drama and all the factors that go into where you feel like you are. And while you may want to run from God, his presence is there to guide you. And so, with this in mind, David then turns in verse 13. If you'll turn with me back to verse 13, he turns to embracing God's complete knowledge. So you see a tone shift. So there's been this discovery of God's knowledge. God, your knowledge is so vast, I can't even get my head around it, but it makes me very uncomfortable, and I'm going to run from your presence. He runs from God's presence, then he rests in God's presence, recognizing that even there, when he's running, God is with him. And now, verse 13, he is embracing God's complete knowledge. So, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, you might call that his bones, So the frame, my frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So that's in his mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them, when as yet there was none of them. Which is to say, from womb to grave, David now is delighting in God's knowledge of him. God, I, I love everything about your knowledge about me. You, you not only know me, but you've planned it all. You've planned all of my life. You, you have designed it all. God, you are, I think we see in these verses, God is the great artist designing and describing and planning out our lives to reveal something about his 
creative purposes, his delight to create. He loves to create. I mean, if you, if you are anti-culture, there is a part of it where you are anti-God's love for creative design. God loves for culture to create things, to design things, to reflect him. He does it here in your life. He does it in everybody's lives and how he designed and creates and cultivates them so that they are reflecting God. God, God doesn't just kind of like half-heartedly do this. He does it with delight. You form my inward parts. You knit me together. This is all God's doing. I do think that this is one way in which we can engage the people around us in describing God by just saying, look, God is the great artist. I was meeting with a friend this morning, art student here in the city, not a Christian, and just talking to him about how God loves God loves for creativity to express itself. God is, before you even step foot on the planet, God was creating and designing you. God is the great artist. God loves to design people. I mean, look, Michelangelo and Leonardo, all these great guys have done great and amazing artwork, right? I mean, <laughs> you can't look at their stuff um, and just not be amazed at, God's create, at their creativity. But you have to recognize God was the one who made their hands God was the one that gave them the special gifting. God was the one that designed their lives so they had the special training um, or the prolonged ability to be able to, to practice how to chisel for you know five years or whatever. I don't know how long it takes. But God's the one who gave them all those skills before we, we were amazed with their skill. God was the one who crafted them. He crafts you in individual in specific ways. Which I feel compelled to address one issue that we are facing that I would rather not address political issues. And so hear me, I'm not giving a political dictum. I'm not addressing policy. But if we did not read these verses and just slightly dwell on the horror of abortion, I would be remiss. Because here we are looking at a verse that describes God's creative and intentional design of every individual person in their mother's womb, it would seem to me, from the moment of conception, with the intention of that being intimately designed by God and ultimately the days of their lives, and here we have us confronted with the issues of pro-life and abortion and all that. So we're not going to dwell on it deeply. But I just want to point out that here is God described as the great artist of every unborn child that has ever been conceived. He is the governor of when they will die and when they will rise. He is the one that has designed them. And yet we have around us a culture that delights in the death of children. Delights in the snuffing out of God's artistic pleasure. Now, I say that with fear and trembling on the weekend before national election. And I leave it to your conscience to vote however you would feel fit. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for in light of this past passage. I'm not going to tell you that that's the most important thing to vote on. But I want us to see that regardless of how you vote, the people around us and the children that are conceived in the world around us are all God's specific and intentional delight and artistry. 
If you love art, it's because God is the artist. And his art loves to produce life in those around us. His art is life-giving. His art is life-producing. It's life-affirming. His art loves to see life and joy and happiness around us, which is why he goes on to talk about there in verse 14, I praise you. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you are the one that has determined how I will be designed. You are the one that has set up how I am to live. You are the one that has made me and I will delight in you because every person, the way that God talks about it in Genesis and when he creates Adam and Eve, they are his little icons of glory. They are God's icons that represent his glory around us. They are the, the icons that represent God's unique person and his glory and he sets them on the earth to rule and to, to show and expand God's glory. And so he goes on to say in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. So, just so you know, I've done my homework. Let's see. Can we go over to the next slide? Because I have the number of how, many sand, how much sand there is in the world. Of all places, the University of Hawaii <laughs> has done the homework for us. And they calculate, if you assume a grain of sand is an average size, and you calculate how many grams are in a teaspoon. So as we're eating tonight, just imagine how, many sand, how much sand goes in that. And then just kind of extrapolate from that to the whole world. Pretty easy, I guess, when you have math. <laughs> and you calculate that by the, multiple, by the number of beaches and deserts in the world. The earth has roughly, and we're speaking very roughly here, <laughs> 2.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sands, or 7 quintillion 500 quadrillion grains. And because, just like you, I have no idea what that number looks like, I put it here. <laughs> that is the number of grains of sand in the world. And what he is saying is God's thoughts about each individual person is effectively more than this number. <laughs> right? He's using it as a, you know, an illustration. God's thoughts about you are more that the number of his thoughts about you, about me, about every one of the 7 billion people in the world, every one of them is more than 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion thoughts. <laughs> his thoughts are expansive and they are intentionally focused on each person. Which doesn't mean that every person in God's hands and I don't understand how this works because I feel like we're all pretty similar, but every person in God's hands are intentionally and uniquely created by him to, create, to reflect him in a specific and unique way. Do you view others as uniquely designed by God? Somebody that is uniquely designed to be uh, with the adventure of getting to know them. God's designed them specifically. How do I get to know who God has specifically designed them to be. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as life of a gnat. But it is immortals, it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, 
marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We do not engage with mere creatures. These people that we exist around and are, are designed by the artistic king of the universe. Which should be helpful when you get frustrated with how you are made. I don't know about you, but I wish I was somebody else sometimes. Actually, most of the time. I get a little frustrated. God, if I was somebody different, why did you make me like this? Why was I born one way or another? Why am I excessively neurotic? Why do I have this intentional tick where I always do the same thing? God, why do I always get angry in these situations? God, why did you make me like this? This this should give you the comfort that despite your weakness and brokenness and fallenness, God still desired to make you. Whoever you are, unique, lots of hair, no hair, disability, no disability, speech impediment, no speech impediment, allergies, which we seem to have a lot of in this group, or no allergies, married, divorced, single, God has uniquely and intentionally created and designed you. And you are here, breathing in this air, because God wants you to be. And doesn't that comfort you? Like, God isn't tolerating me. God intentionally designed you. He, all these, verse 13 through 16, every one of your days, Every one of your hairs, every one of the, 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 the difficult days to the best days, he has designed it to reflect his glory in your life. How precious are those thoughts about, about you that God has? Which also means, and I might have alluded to this, that one of the ways in which we can orient towards each other for joy is each person in this room is God's invitation to a discovery and an adventure of who God is making them to be. I, I, we are invited by the mere fact of existence. We are invited to get to know each other, to delight in each other, to get to know who are you and what are you about and what has God designed you to be. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to grow in holiness and all those things. So you understand what I'm saying? The specific vein in which I'm talking about here. God has designed us to get to know each other, get to know who we are. Which I just want you to know, as your pastor, I have no agenda for you other than to help you be conformed to the image of Christ. You are a gift to God's church, which means my job is to steward and cultivate what God is making you to be. To help God apply God's promises, to help remind you of the gospel. I don't, I don't have a grand agenda for the church, guys. <laughs> I just want you to know, we're a bunch of misfits, and we're just going to take whoever God brings to us, right? That, so that means that I'm not trying to make you into some like grand discipleship project where you're going to have these skills and these set of things because I have this project in mind. We're just going to take who God gives us and we're going to grow together. I know that sounds a bit loosey-goosey, but I mean, <laughs> I don't really think I want a program for how to, t- I, I don't know how to make you who God wants you to be. I want to join what God's doing because the reality is because God had designed you, designed me, God's the first on the scene. I'm always second. You're always second to talking to to somebody. God's always first. God's the one who's designed you and in Christ now redeeming you 
and I'm second on the scene. I'm just going to figure out what Jesus is doing and help that happen. That, that should be our posture towards each other. That's how we cultivate this whole idea of joy together. I mean, isn't this an amazing invitation that we have in each other? God has designed you specifically. And then being a part of the church uniquely called us to cultivate the life of Christ in each other. I, I can't tell you what Jesus is making you to be. I can tell you that you should, you know, not do stupid stuff and not sin and grow in holiness, but I can't tell you what your gifts should be. I can't tell you what you should do with them. I can suggest things, but see the invitation here to our life together as a church? So, just a question to ask whenever you're approaching people that are existing, which is everybody, what is God doing in this person? We want to join what God is doing, ask how we can join what God's doing, and then help ask how we can steward what God is doing in each other. So then we have, at the end of verse 18, I awake and I'm still with you. Now, I, I'm always curious. I mean, I like and I write poetry, and I'm not really sure I understand how David puts things together sometimes. But I think what's going on as he's talking about, God, you have made me, you designed me, I'm delighting in this. He says, I awake and I'm still with you. Commentators, they kind of divide over whether he's talking about, um, he's been like really deeply thinking about this and now he's like coming out of like a meditative stupor. It's like, oh God, I'm awake and I'm still with you. Or if he's thinking about uh, resurrection. So the, the idea being, um, God, you have designed my life, and I've just said you're with me to the you're with me to the end of the day, end of my days, and even after I die, I will awake and I'm still with you. I, I I lean towards the resurrection one, but you can choose whatever one you want. I think what he has in mind here is God, even in the midst of my my life and every part of my life and my death, I will arise after my death and still be with you. And in between that moment resurrection and this moment there is a life to be lived in between and so let's just move on to the fourth part of our story living in God's complete knowledge so David has discovered God's complete knowledge about him he has run from it and embraced it and now he is trying to live in God's complete knowledge so we get to verses 19 through 24 oh that you would slay the wicked O God O men of blood depart from me they speak evil against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a bit of a theme change. <laughs> seems like a bit of a right turn from what he's just been talking about. We've just been talking about all these great sentiments. God, you know me. You have made me. I delight in you, God. No enemies. <laughs> it's like... I don't quite, so I think, here's what I think is going on. We have to pay attention to what is being said and what is not being said. So I, I just want to, bear with me. This is not, say, I do not think this is saying, if you know God, you can't be friends with people who don't know God. <laughs> That's not what's being said here. What, I, what David is specifically going after, he's, verse 20, they speak against you with malicious intent. So these are people who Speak against God intentionally. And then the second half of the verse, your enemies take your name in vain. So there are people who claim to know God, but they don't rightly reveal, reflect God, 
right? So they take your name in vain. So they're not only, they're, they're speaking words against God. And in the Bible, when it says, do not take the Lord your God's name in vain, what that means is uh, don't pretend to know God, but not live like it, right? So these are people who are saying things against God and they're living lives against God. Um, <laughs> that's my child. <laughs> he is fearfully and wonderfully made. So the enemies are ones who speak against God and they take God's name in vain. These are people who do not, who will not be um, his companion. So I think what he has in view here is that these are people that um, intentionally go after, deny, and reject the knowledge of God. And so here's David recognizing, God, I, w- I want to know you. I want to live to your glory. I want to reflect your glory in my life. And he's saying, I'm not going to take into my, com- my, like my inner companions, people who, who won't acknowledge your nearness, who won't acknowledge, your knowledge, acknowledge you, who won't reflect you, who won't... Uh, who won't um, help me obey you. I, th- I think he's saying in very provocative language, so, you know, don't, do I not hate those who hate you? I don't think the Bible is saying you have to hate people who don't love God. But I think in terms of our priorities and convictions, we're not going to take into our inner sanctum, so to speak, our, 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 our deep friendships, people that are not going to help us grow in our knowledge of God and, re- and obedience to God. I mean, you see this in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 6, 4. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has, un- has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So this isn't saying, so I, was, I hung out with my, a friend of mine this morning, not a Christian. We talked for four hours about Jesus. Does that mean that I'm disobeying this command by hanging out with him? No. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, um, I shouldn't, you know, uh, hold as my my closest friends those people who are going to reject God and intentionally go out of their way to help me reject God. Shouldn't get married to people who are rejecting God. We shouldn't um, cultivate deep relationships where we gain wisdom and counsel from people who are rejecting God. But this isn't said in a self righteous tone, right? So here's David discovering God's knowledge. Embracing God's knowledge, complete knowledge, and now he's trying to live in God's complete knowledge. Which we go into verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So David, David's not saying, look, I'm without sin, and all these guys who are sinful, strike them down, and yea, Jesus. Like, that's not what he's saying, right? He is saying, Lord, sin clings so closely. I do not trust myself, Lord. You know me. You know my inner heart. You know how I have rejected you. These people have given themselves over to rejecting you. God, help me. Help me not to reject you. Help me to walk in your ways, which we have to ask, David, how can you pray this? How can you and I pray this with the confidence that God can now search us out and know us and not cast us out? How can, how can we look at this psalm and say, God, know me with the confidence that when God does discover sin in us, when God does discover our weaknesses and brokenness and sins, failures, that he will not reject us. So it's just, I want to I 
turn back and we just reread some aspects of the psalm because now at the end of the psalm, we want to turn back and I think we will begin to see things in a light pointing us to Christ because the psalm starts out, and we passed over this, but I want to point it out now. The psalm starts out, O Lord, which is to say, O God who makes covenant with sinful broken people, and who will fulfill his covenant with sinful, broken people on his own dime, on his own power, on his own time. O Lord, you will search me. God, you are the one who fulfills your promises to the broken. You are the one that fulfills your promises to your people on your own time, by your own power, and in your own way. We see this psalm in, when it, with, the, with God's covenant name of promise to broken people at the front of it, pointing us to his fulfillment of his covenant promises to his people. This is a psalm by David, who was a broken, flawed man, who somehow was praying this in light of God's covenant name, because he knew God made this promise to David, I will give you a son who will never walk away from me. That son was Jesus. God promised David the better David that was to come. He was looking forward to the day to come when the Lord himself, who has compassion on broken people, would take on flesh, who would be knit together. Verses 13, knit together in his mother's womb by God's personal specific care. Knit together in a virgin's womb. We were about to celebrate Christmas. This is the prequel to Christmas. Knit together in his mother's womb, who would, though commanding the stars above and commanding the sun to stay in its place and to govern the world, he would walk on dusty roads in God's presence, not fleeing from God's presence. Verse 7 there, where should I go from your spirit? Jesus didn't flee from God's spirit. He went driven by the spirit. He was walking in the spirit. He was in God's presence at all times. He who was, as verse 8 says, ascended to heaven. He was the one who from heaven came down among the earth and would go down to Sheol, go down to, to the earth itself, who would take our punishment in our place that was planned and predestined by God. So here we are talking about God's knowledge of us determining all the facts of our lives. Jesus' life was not only mostly, uh, mostly superseded and mostly governed by God, but it was governed to the darkest places. Verse, 10, verse 12, even the darkness is not dark for you. Jesus, who was governed by God's will, who was led by God's will to take on the darkness of our sin and rebellion against God, take that place so that the light of God's mercy would shine upon us in his death. So we have in Acts, we're just seeing this filled out in the book of Acts, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom he, you delivered, he's talking to the Pharisees, denied in the presence of Pilate when he, when he had been deceived, decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So here we have all these up, up, opposing darkness coming against the holy one in Psalm 139. Here we have the, 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 the forces of darkness coming against the holy and righteous one in the book of Acts asking for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, 
To this we are witnesses, and then he goes on to say in the book, chapter 4 of, of the book of Acts, for truly in the city where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, these people who are the enemies, the wicked, the departed ones from God, they were all and still in God's hand, what does it say? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's foreknowledge, his intimate knowledge about Jesus that Jesus was aware of. Right? Jesus was not surprised by God's plan. But he held to his father's hand and followed his father's plan into darkness, down into death, in our place, so that we would be raised again. So that we could say with verse 18, I am awake. Oh, but God, but now I'm awake. I could have been dead, covered over by darkness, but now I'm awake and I'm still with you so that now in the hands of Christ, we look to him and we see that not only has he planned our lives and governed our lives, but he has done it with joy and gladness so that we would be conformed to Christ so that there, verse 24, we have confidence that he'll discover our grievous ways and correct us. But we have confidence that he will lead me in the way everlasting. All the ways that God has known, all the things about your life that God has known from before creation. Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ? He has planned those things to be your companion on the way everlasting. So as we go into this next week, regardless of what happens with the election, God knows ahead of time. And God has planned for this week ahead to be your companion on the way everlasting. Because we have here in Psalm 139 a God who delights in you. Not because you're so great, but because he's such a great God who designs who you are to know and reflect him. And now in Christ, he is taking you by the hand and leading you in the way everlasting. So I think, in light of all this, we can say the true joy comes from submitting to an all-knowing God. True joy comes from surrendering to our all-knowing God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at this psalm and we dwell upon your infinite knowledge about us that you know everything, God, we grow uncomfortable because we are weak and sinful people. And yet, God, you know us and you have planned to save us in Christ. And so in confidence we come to you and we surrender. God, we lay down our arms and we surrender to you. Would you give us joy now? in your presence with Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.